Welcome to The Voice of Retail. I'm your host, Michael LeBlanc. This podcast is brought to you in conjunction with Retail Council of Canada. In this episode, I catch up with longtime friend and colleague Phil Terry, sharing reflections going back 25 years in the e-commerce usability field and exploring Phil's new book, Never Search Alone. Based on 25 years of experience working with thousands of leaders, the book provides a time-tested, multi-step process to find the right job now, one that sits at the intersection of hopes, dreams, and market realities. This book isn't me sitting in a room thinking big thoughts, oh, I'm smart, let me tell you what to do. This book is based on 20 years of working with thousands of people and then hundreds of them using the book and and applying it. I really, I really wanted to do it that way. So there's three big ideas that carry most of the weight. Let's, Let's make sure your readers understand that. The first is the title of the book, Never Search Alone. That idea is, hey, you know, uh, yes, look, at when, when, you know, networking, you know, resume, LinkedIn, negotiating, all these things are important. Uh, but it turns out the most important thing you need to manage in your job search is your emotional balance. Phil, welcome to the Voice of Retail podcast, my friend. How are you? I'm good, Michael. It's great to be here with you. Well, you and I have known each other. I was counting since the late 90s back in the go-go days and uh, it's been my pleasure to kind of keep track of what you've been up to always so interesting so it's wonderful to hear your voice and and thanks again for joining me i'm glad to be here i'm excited michael my new book never search alone is out and after six years of hard work we'll get into it but really appreciate you inviting me but let's let's jump right in let's talk about you i mean when you and i first met uh, at least I was in the dot-com trying to figure out things like usability and customer focus. And that's where we, you and I had intersected. But uh, for, right. the folks, for the folks listening, give us a bit of a personal and professional journey. And, and uh, you're up to so many things. So we could spend a half hour just talking about all the things you're involved in. But give us the cold notes, so to speak, of who you are and, and what you do. Yeah, sure. I'm happy to do that. Um, I'll, and I'll just briefly say that this um, this book is this new book, Never Search Alone, is is a is both an extension and departure from where I've come from. I think that's you know an mm. interesting thing. I think you're probably digging into. But you and I met in the in the '90s. I had been a part of the first startup team that Amazon of a you know the company uh, first startup that Amazon bought uh, company. No one's ever heard of anymore. Uh, <laughs> it was called Planet All, and it, they were we were actually the first. But, you know, if we didn't know what we were doing. We, if we had realized we were building the first LinkedIn, <laughs> we might have hung in there. Yeah but, yeah, um, yeah. but we sold to Amazon. And then, you know, I had uh, created a uh, council of Internet CEOs when I was at Harvard Business School with McKinsey. It's really the first kind of private peer forum in the in the very early Internet world. And then later, you know, after the. The startup, I then uh, partnered uh, with a good friend and, and built a customer experience consulting firm, Creative Good. Mm-hmm. I was the CEO of that for 15 years. We were pioneers in customer experience in the internet world. When we yeah. started, uh, there, were liter- there was literally maybe one other firm mm-hmm. kind of thinking about those questions. And yeah. when I sold the business 15 years later, there were you know thousands and thousands yeah, yeah. of you know, software firms, consulting agencies, design firms. Um, but we were pioneers and um, 
as and you for, and for those listening, you know, for the, maybe the, let's say the younger executives, younger folks sure. listening. I mean, back in the early days of dot com, I, I always equated it to the early days of automobiles. Like every automobile worked differently. Like the gas pedal was left, right, or center, and that's right. how dot com worked. Like you'd go to a different site, and every checkout was different, and you had to figure out every site. Like those were those were interesting, chaotic, but uh, you know, necessary days. But it, it's so different back then yeah. than it is today, right? Well, I love being at, you know, sort of at the very beginning of things, mm-hmm. which, by the way, is where I think I am with this book, Never Search Alone, which, mm-hmm. again, we'll, we'll get back to. But the, the job search has not been disrupted in 50 years. Yeah. Um, and I, th- I think we're on the, on the precipice of, of a big change there. But, yeah, in the early days of, of the Internet, yeah, everything was bespoke. Everything was custom. Mm-hmm. And in fact, Michael, um, you might laugh at this. Like, I was literally one of the first people to to teach retailers that there was something important called a conversion rate. Yeah, yeah. I remember. Uh, like, you know, like, who my, cares? I just I just want to buy an ad on the Super Bowl. Isn't that going to get me where I need to go? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, you know, I'll never forget. Like, we went into Gateway Computer, which again, your listeners, if they're younger, won't know, but. Yeah. They were had been a pioneer in you know custom made computers along with Dell direct order, and they were neck and neck with Dell at the time. Uh, you know they've since gone away, but you know we went in and said, hey, you know conversion rates important, and uh, your customers are completely confused, <laughs> and we boosted conversion rate by forty percent in that project, mm-hmm. generated a hundred million dollars in the first year. In incremental revenue. I hope in you had a percentage. Rate. I hope you had a percentage growth deal on that one, but you probably didn't, right? You know, Michael, I tried. <laughs> <laughs> they did not want to give me that, and I tried after that. Yeah. We ended up, do, you know, we were we worked with Apple, Facebook. You know, we did. Yeah. We did five hundred. No, excuse me, four hundred projects. Wow. Almost every leading retailer software firm out there for those fifteen years. It was a great ride, but along the way, I started this thing. So when I was at business school in the 90s, I had created that CEO council. Mm-hmm. And then in the early 2000s, I created the uh, uh, the councils for internet executives. It started with Google and Amazon and Travelocity back in 2002. This is actually the tw- our 20th anniversary, 20 years. We've had thousands of senior executives come through the councils. It's a very simple program. Uh, we simply put you know, leaders together in non-competing companies in small forums and, and teach them to ask for help. Now, again, when I did this in 2002, nobody else was doing this, certainly not in the Internet world, and certainly no one had done anything like it for VP, GM level folks. Now, un- unpack, unpack that a little for us, because what you said there is very interesting. So it's not unusual to have groups together for networking or for associations, but you have a very particular bent, and of course it, it's a thread that runs through the book that ask for help. I unpack that for the listeners. Sure. And just, you know, just so the listeners know, and, and, you know, Michael, you and I, we met, I think in the context of shop.org. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. you know, in the, in the late nineties, shop.org was a couple hundred people. <laughs> we yeah. all knew each other in the yeah. early days of, of web and e-commerce, you know, today is thousands. And I said, you know, Hey, we need a private environment where, you know, a small group, 10, 12 people, where a leader can really be open, vulnerable and ask for help. And, you know, where you can really 
address what I call the knowing doing gap. You can know that it's important to be vulnerable. You can know that it's important to ask for help, which I've been an evangelist my entire career of asking mm-hmm. for help, whether it's asking for help from customers or asking for, for help from peers or mm-hmm. asking for help in this case, you know, from the broad, your network in the marketplace when we get, when we get to my book in the, in the job search. Big fan of asking for help. It's transformative. My mother taught me it. My mm-hmm. mother, whose nickname was Chick, yeah. Uh, started actually the first council in 1960 in the San Fernando Valley in Los Angeles, where she brought elementary school teachers together hmm. to ask for help from each other. And they met for 50 years, 5-0, 50 years, wow. Wow. until the year before she died. And um, she was a pioneer, Michael. I mean, no one else, no one else was doing it. Vistage, which is uh, for CEOs today, YPO for CEOs, no one else was doing private peer forums when my mom invented that in 1960. Hmm. And so I grew up learning about it from her. So I started my first peer council in college for progressive student leaders of different organizations. I was running the anti-apartheid movement, you know, others running, you know, gay and lesbian or women's organizations. And then, as I mentioned, at business school with McKinsey, I helped set up this Internet business forum for CEOs. And then in the early 2000s, I started the councils. And we've had several thousand people come through the program, every single Internet company out there. VP, GM, COO, CEO, very strong in product and CX, not a surprise given my background. Yeah. And we, two years ago, we started a new program for young women and people of color mm. and LGBTQ in uh, product and UX who are early career, you know, individual right. contributor, maybe a first time manager. We call that the associate councils and it is going incredibly well, mm. really powerful. We've got a great lineup of companies in there, Apple, you know, Target, Walmart, you know, a bunch of uh, retailers, you know, uncommon goods, smaller folks, software companies. Anyway, yeah. so yes, and through this entire thread runs asking for help, asking for help, asking for help. It's really, it's hard to do, but it is transformative. It's the most important thing you can do in your career. And I talk about this and never search alone because I'm telling people they need to ask for help in their job search, of course. Yeah. Well, let's get, I, I want to ask you a couple of questions before we get to the book. We're going to spend a lot of time on the book. And I, th- I do think it is one of the most interesting books I've ever read in this space, just because wow. you, you're, you're wow. underselling it a little bit because you're, wow. you know, it's not a book about just asking for help. You put a structure together. It's not just opining about yeah. a strategy. It is a roadmap. Like yeah. you just, oh. it's a guidebook. I mean, you just follow the book. Yeah, um, no, I feel so strongly about that. I wanted this, as I say in the book, you know, um, it's like a cookbook, right? You get the calories from actually cooking. You can't, you know, not just reading. So I yeah, want yeah, yeah. some people something <laughs> they can actually follow. And I have a whole bunch of tools yeah. they can also download for free. But anyway, yeah, you were yeah. gonna, before we get to the book, you were going to say something else. Well, tell, tell us a little bit about Slow Art Day. You're involved in a lot of other interesting things. But when, yeah. you know, following you on social media, one of the most intriguing things and wonderful sure. things that you do is Slow Art Day. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, Michael, Steve Jobs, when he was still alive, I mean, you know, people quote him a lot. But one of the things he did truly believe and and talked about was uh, the the importance of visual art and uh, spurring creativity and design and innovation and new ways of thinking. Um, and so, you know, I, I took that seriously. But there, there was a big problem. So, you know, a lot of my work. What it ties together is that, you know, is that I I try to come up with a new way, a new environmental design, if you will, to challenge longstanding problems. Right. So whether that's customer experience in business 
um, whether that's uh, the job search and how to think about your career, um, which again, hasn't, in my opinion, hasn't been thought about in any serious way for maybe ever. Certainly or, in any new way, certainly in any new way. And, in any new way, yeah. It's yeah, not disrupt. Yeah. I mean, everything we have today is a, is a digital version of the analog process that's been right. around for 50 or 100 years. Yep. And those, those are great. LinkedIn's a great tool, but it doesn't, it doesn't address the fundamental problem of how to find a, a really good job. Uh, and, and many people get very frustrated with the fact they can't, they can't seem to find a really good job that they love and, mm-hmm. and that really accelerates their career. But when it comes to art, like, you know, he, he, here's the thing, Michael. Um, you know, people can intellectually recognize that art and visual art is important for creativity and design. But the average person who goes to an art museum, and that already is a select group because most people don't go to art museums. So mm-hmm. we're talking already about a, a, a minority of people who go spend five to seven seconds looking at an individual piece of art. <laughs> and that, my friend, is not enough to see anything. And in fact, mm-hmm. half the time is spent reading the, the card describing the art. Yeah. Uh, and the artist. So <laughs> that's true. I said, listen, we can't just tell people to look at art longer because they're not going to it's it's not set up for that. And in fact, museums were in a mode at the time of pushing people quickly through and exit through the gift shop. In fact, there's a yeah. famous documentary called Exit Through the Gift Shop. Yeah. It talks yeah. about that dynamic. So I said, listen, this is a well-known problem, but no one's done anything about it. So I launched this movement called Slow Art Day, where every year. In April, I pick, a, I pick the day every year, and me and a team of volunteers from around the world support museums to run their own local events. And what they do is they pick five pieces of art that people come and look at t- for 10 minutes at each individual piece of art and then have a conversation about it. And this thing has just expanded enormously. Uh, by the way, the Art Gallery of Ontario, one of the preeminent museums, of course, in Canada, is a longtime mm, partner mm. in Slow Art Day. Um, but you know, we, I mean, thousands of museums all over the world on every single continent, Michael, including Antarctica at the McMurdo (laughs) station there, if you can believe it, runs a slow art day and it's turned into this wonderful movement. Um, and it's really, you know, it's making an impact. It's helping people learn how to slow down and really see. And that has so many implications way beyond business. But if you're in business, you should run slow art day sessions with your teams, mm-hmm. with your product and design and, and uh, business team. So they can learn, you know, something about, you know, and get the spark of creativity that jobs was, was talking about. I was, um, I was at the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, I've always internalized, not always, but since you've started this, I've internalized that idea. So I just sat in front of Nightwatch for, ah. you know, for, for a good half hour. It's one of my favorite ah. paintings. What a and, great painting. What a great painting. I right. Like it, it just, there's just so much going on. And, and, uh, I love that painting. It's now suspended in three dimensions. Like it's really just so interesting. And, and, you know, it, it, I kind of, what you said, you know, you spend as much time sometimes reading the note card about the painting than you do the painting, you know, it's really, it's a really a very acute observation. All right. So love, and, and I'm going to put links to all this stuff in the show notes so people can yeah. go explore and I'll, you that. Know, before, and I'll just say one thing for your listeners. There's a very simple, slow-looking algorithm that they can follow on their own. So, you know, go to a museum with your family or two or three friends or whatever it is. And it doesn't have to be slow art day. And, you know, just in each gallery that you visit, pick up what I call a selector. Pick a selector. All of you spend a couple of minutes walking around. Do quick looking. That's fine. The selector's job is to pick one piece that all of you are going to look at for 10 minutes. 
So after the first couple of minutes in the gallery, the selector says, okay, we're going to walk, we're going to look at night watch, whatever. We're going to look at, you know, the, the, you know, harvesters, which is a fantastic painting yeah. uh, in, in the Met, whatever it might be. And then you all look for 10 minutes and then, and then you simply say, okay, what did you see? Hmm. And let people talk. People love this experience. They love it. They, you can't stop them from talking. And then hmm. you go to the next gallery and you pick a different selector. And you'd spend a couple of minutes looking around and that selector picks a piece. doesn't matter what. And you'd spend 10 minutes looking at it, then have a conversation. And let me tell you, if you do that, you will have an amazing museum experience. Yeah. Way better than anything you've ever done before. And you won't leave tired. You're going to leave energized and excited mm-hmm. and with some, um, you know, some of the neurons bouncing around in your brain in new ways. Yeah, it's, it's really transformational when you just as you just articulate that whole process is fantastic. All right. Quick question before we get to the, the meat and potatoes of the book. Um, yeah. You know, you spent your early part of the career helping people figure out, let's call it usability, your UX or customers. And looking back or looking ahead, I don't know yeah. which direction I'm going. Do you think we're as far down uh, that in terms of solving that as you thought we might be 25 years later? I mean, you, you laid out some basic principles in the late nineties, which were at the time, but you know, as you, as you, yeah, as you, as you sit today, you know, maybe you're doing online shopping yourself or you're walking through stores or you're doing a doctor's appointment or whatever. Do you think we'd be farther along or are you happy with the relative process or, or, or progress in terms of what you started out with in your career? Great question. And I have to say, uh, my answer is both. Mm. I am both frustrated with the pace of change (laughs) and excited with the pace of change. Let me explain what I'm saying. So for a long time, it felt like nothing was changing. I'm like beating my head against a wall. Mm. And um, then in the late 2000s, a new crop of startups came along that had had customer experience baked into their DNA. Mm. You know, Airbnb is a great example. Yep. You know. They, there are a few issues with the Airbnb website and, and, and customer experience. I mean, there, there will always be with any company. Sure. But fundamentally, they saw a need. They solved it. They've created a great online experience. They've done that well. So, you know, there's a famous saying in science that basically science advances one funeral at a time. <laughs> <laughs> I think that business advances one, you know, one company funeral at a time, right? So a lot of the companies, you know, the older companies just, they cannot get their heads around this. A few have been able to, but most can't. And they're either dead or dying. You know, there are some major retailers, I won't name them, who frankly, I think should just be gone at this point. They have, they, you know, they haven't done anything new for the customer experience since the 1960s, right? Um, (laughs) And so, you know, they can't get, you know, out of their own way. I generally you know, don't take a job with a company like that, right? You're going to be much better off working with a company that invests in, and this is, you know, it, it, as you know, that I have this structured time-tested process in the book for how to look for a job, including yep. how to evaluate the culture, the product, the strategy, the CX of a company before you join. Never search alone the job seekers playbook. So first of all, let's talk about the tradecraft because you didn't just sit down in a quiet room yeah. and write this book. Talk about, you know, the the tradecraft, the the sure. what you say in the book 400 revisions. This is like it's like WD40, right? This is is a 401 version and talk about the tradecraft of pulling 
the insights together that formed this book? Well, it would be hypocritical of me as a longtime customer experience evangelist, right, if I didn't apply that methodology to the writing of my book. I had to do that, right? Like, I, I wasn't going to be able to write a book. Now, I had, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that I run these councils where I bring mm-hmm. senior leaders and now, you know, a, a group of early career leaders in product and UX together. Well, for 20 years, I had been coaching these leaders because they would come to me, you know, they, the, the councils is to help them do their jobs better and help them learn from each other. But inevitably, either they get laid off, they'd leave a job or they'd hit a crossroads and they come mm-hmm. to me. And I started, you know, helping them think about their job in a new way. And I was very, very frustrated, again, with the fact that that literally, Michael, I don't think this is an understatement. I don't think anyone has sit down, sat down for decades and said, you know, how should you look for a job or how should you develop your career in any serious way? Mm. There's a bunch of tools out there, but yeah. no one has said conceptually, how should this process work? And certainly no one has done it since the internet and product customer revolution, right? So, you know, for example, I, one, of the, one of the big ideas in the book is candidate market fit. If product market fit drives business success, candidate market fit drives career success. In other words, you need to think about both what you want and how the market sees you. When you're in a job search, you're the product and you have to do some research, just like you absolutely have to do research if you're you know, developing a website, a mobile app or whatever it is you're doing. Um, but that's like a fundamental thing that's missing from the process. And no one had actually thought about that. So I had started developing that with all of these leaders. And then I said, I got to write this book. I, you know, mm-hmm. I actually originally I sat down to write a book about asking for help and about career councils. What, what the kinds of things we do today for members in jobs. But I realized as I was writing, like, oh, my God, there's this huge unmet need. Mm-hmm. As I was saying, no one has really looked at this process. And so I, uh, I did 250 interviews wow. before I started writing. 250 mm. interviews. And you can appreciate what that means mm-hmm. as a podcaster. That's yeah. a lot of interviews, right? I talked to CEOs. I talked to a lot of CEOs. I talked to Fortune, five, Fortune 50 mm-hmm. CEOs. I talked to Fortune 500 CEOs. I talked to startup CEOs tech CEOs, software CEOs. I talked to VPs of product, GMs. I talked to VPs of customer experience. I talked to directors. Now, now in, in, in all that, did the thread of insight happen over time? Like sometimes when I do a lot of interviews together, yeah. I, I write a quarterly report on retail. Yeah. And after the 20th interview, the, the, the 80, 90% of my narrative is built. And then the rest of the interviews basically substantiate what I was thinking. Yeah. But sometimes... You know, at 200, is it like, did it come as an epiphany or did it happen over time or did it come in the first 10 and then the other 109 yeah. kind of reinforced it? How was that? How was that process? So, you know, running customer research, you know, we ran 400 projects for companies, again, like Apple and Facebook and others. And we experienced what you described, right? The first 10 really set the you know, stage and most of the key insights and then the rest validate. In this process, that was true for a key insight in the book around asking for help. And that key insight was that if you're already a senior executive, C-level executive, CEO, board member, because I also interviewed board members and such, then actually along the way, you've gotten over the stigma of asking for help and, you, and you've learned to do it some way or another. It's mm-hmm. actually, and you credit that with propelling you forward. If, however, uh, and, and that was true for 85% of the people I interviewed at C-level or above. 
if you are below, especially director level or below, 85% of those people had not yet learned to ask for help and saw some stigma or, or at least didn't feel like they had the time to do it, right? So that insight like came early on and was just reinforced and reinforced a hundred times. A couple other key things came out, right? Which is that people, people don't think or do any kind of research. But it took me a long time, Michael, took me maybe four years before I finally figured out that, oh, my God, what we're talking about here is candidate market fit, that it was analogous to product market fit. It like hit me over the head one morning. I felt like, how could I have missed that? How did that take me four years to figure out? Right. Now, um, were you, wait, wait, were you having a coffee? Were you in the shower? I mean, where did that you know, epiphany I was in strike? That, I was in that liminal phase between awake and asleep that is so creative. It literally like that voice in my head, like woke me up. <laughs> Candidate market fit. You know, there's three big ideas in the book that, that carry most of the weight. And as you met, there's a five step time tested process, you know, that I tested. And by the way, you like fives, by the way, right? You like fives. I like threes. You like a lot of fives. I noticed yeah. everything's five for you. I do. I know. I know. <laughs> McKinsey teaches you to do threes, but I've gotten to fives for some reason. But I'll, I'll just add one more thing, and then I'll talk about the the five steps and and, uh, and and help your readers get a sense of what this book is all about and the three big ideas. But um, I did – so I had 2,000 people I coached. I had 250 people I interviewed before the writing started. And then while I was drafting, I had 200 – actually, about 250. I say 200 in the book, but it, was, it ended up being about 250 people who were looking for a job read early drafts of the book and give me mm. collectively 2,500 comments that drove 400 major and minor drafts for mm. this thing. Mm. And so I, I think it may be the single most tested book mm. <laughs> ever written. Talk, you talk about wisdom of the crowd, right? I mean, it, it, it really yeah. pulls, this pulls is, this that book, together. This mm. book isn't me sitting in a room thinking big thoughts. Right. Oh, I'm smart. Right. Let me tell you what to do. This book is based on 20 years of working with thousands of people and then hundreds of them using the book and, and applying it. Which by, um, the way, which, by the way, if you wrote a book like that, it would still be a bestseller because you've got so much experience. But the way you did it is, is let's just say, on brand, that's for sure. Yeah. I really, I really wanted to do it that way. So there's three big ideas that carry most of the weight. Let's, let's make sure your readers understand that. The first is the title of the book, Never Search Alone. That idea is, hey, you know, uh, yes, look, at when, when, you know, networking, you know, resume, LinkedIn, negotiating, all these things are important. Uh, but it turns out the most important thing you need to manage in your job search is your emotional balance. We all, and this is true, Michael, this is true. Like, uh, you know, literally I have coached and worked with CEOs of Internet companies who have sold other companies, had great exits are extremely well-respected, but when they're thinking or they're being recruited, like let's say into a later stage company or whatever, they're feeling the insecurity and anxiety that we all feel in the job search, mm. right? And it turns out, so you, the most important thing you need to manage in the job search is your emotional balance. Mm. And because we're a social species, if you form a mutual support group, what I call a job search council of other job seekers, you guys can come together with your anxiety and insecurity and just by sharing that, convert it into hope, motivation, accountability, and confidence. It is 
really, really, really powerful. So that's the first idea. Never search alone. Set up a job search council and mutual support group. The second idea we talked about, you know, if product market fit drives business success, candidate market fit drives uh, career success. So you need to go out and precisely define through a process. I give you both what you want and how the market sees you. Right. And let me just say a few things about that. First of all, most of us don't know what we want. Mm. And I understand that in the book. And I say, that's why you have to go through an iterative process of drafting out, thinking about what you want, talking to people. I, I, you have to go on a listening tour, as I outline in the book, to see how the market sees you, but also get feedback from others yeah. who know you about helping you see what maybe what you want. And then at the end of that process, you end up with this wonderful clarity. So I tell the story in the book about Didi. So Didi had been a chief data officer at a public company. She left, decided she wanted to become a CTO, spent a year spinning her wheels, got, got lots of interviews, but no offers, right? She finally came to me and I said, oh, okay, Didi, first of all, let's get you in a mutual support group. Let's get you in a job search council. Mm-hmm. So she did that right away. I said, here's a draft of my book, start reading. And then let's get you on a listening tour. Let's find out your candidate market fit, right? So she knew she wanted a CTO job. So that part was done. Again, many people don't know exactly what they want, but she did in this case. Mm -hmm. So she went out and spoke to people. And one of the things I do is I say, speak to recruiters. Mm. And and what you do with recruiters is very different from what most people do with recruiters at this stage of the process that I outline in the book. At this stage, you're not asking them for a job. You're asking for their advice, Mm -hmm. for their expertise. Mm -hmm. Recruiters love this because nobody... You know, candidates always approach recruiters and say, I want this, get it for me. Why don't you get it for me or get frustrated? Why? No, no. Actually, recruiter, what do you think? And I give you three questions. What what job do you think I could get tomorrow? What's in the ballpark but might be a stretch? And what's beyond my ability to get today? Hmm. And I love that third question, by the way. That's right? a powerful. That's a powerful question. Really powerful question. And so she came, the recruiter said to her, look, um, you're not a candidate for a classic CTO role. I would never think of you that way. You're outside you know, the ballpark for that. But there's a new trend of some companies hiring CTOs with data science and data management backgrounds. And mm. for that, you are a perfect fit. Mm. And bam, she got her candidate market fit and within three weeks had three mm. offers. And so... You know, it takes a, a, the, the big the big obstacle that job seekers have is I say, listen, slow down, set up a mutual support group and then a job search council and then go do some research. And people are like, no, no, I got to get a job now. Mm. Even by the way, even when they have money, I say, how much money do you have? You know, you know I'm, I'm fine. I'm good. I can I say, well, listen, this is a go slow to go fast process. Mm. Right. Again, slow our day plays a nice role in here. Yeah, 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 Slowing yeah. down is a powerful way to actually, you know, really do something. Uh, and so you slow down at first, but it ends up being faster and better in the long run. And this, you know, this can, and then the third big idea is that there's four legs to the negotiation stool, four legs, not just compensation. Compensation is important and, and not enough people negotiate comp, although that's changed in the last several years, which is great. Mm-hmm. But there are three more legs to that stool. There's budget resources and support. In other words, there's what you need to succeed in that job. And nobody does this. Nobody Mm. does this. Okay. Mm -hmm. But if you do it, it's actually even more important than comp. Because Mm. if you do it and you get set up to succeed, everything changes in the trajectory of your career. 
I'll give you a mm-hmm. quick A, B example. Two people. One was a, they were both chief product officers slash chief technology officers in the software world. And they were both experienced in that CPO slash CTO role. Okay. Both are getting offers, which is great. Both knew their candidate market fit, but one negotiated budget resources and support and the other didn't. Here's what happened. The first one got an offer from a private equity backed software company. And during the interview process, and again, I go through this in the book, how to evaluate, he figured out they had about $20 million in tech debt, technical debt. I'm, mm. I'm sure your listeners understand that term. It basically means old systems that are not reliable and that are really holding the business back that you need to bring up to speed so you can start to do innovation and new product development. So I said, listen, you've got to talk to the CEO and board and get their sign off as part of the offer negotiation that they're going to write you a check day one for $20 million to ease that tech down. Mm. He's like, oh, my God, you're right. So he goes and he speaks to them and they agree. Day one, they write the check, $20 million. Six months later, tech debt is retired and he can turn his attention to new product development. He does that. It's really successful. A year later, the company gives him an additional you know, uh, a GM responsibility to P&L responsibility to run a division of the business. Big deal. And then six months after that, they are interviewing him for the CEO role. Wow. Wow. Really accelerated. Now take person number two. This is true, by the way. This is, I'm not making this up. Second mm-hmm. person, same thing. CPO, CTO, in his case, private equity backed software firm. He, he thought they had about 10 million in tech debt. He says that, so I said, you got to negotiate this with the CEO. So he brings it up to the CEO and said, CEO said, oh, he says what ma- many people say at first. They'll say, oh, we'll, we'll deal with that when you get on board. Just come on board and make the pitch for it. I said, to him, no, listen, you are a really experienced person. You know what you're talking about here. You know you're in the order of magnitude is correct. Maybe it's eight, maybe it's 12, but like you got it. He said, nah, he decided not to you know, push it. Okay. So he doesn't negotiate that. Day one, no check for $10 million. Day, mm-hmm. Month three, no check. Month six, no check. There's, oh, I'm not sure we have the money for this, or maybe uh, we, don't, we don't agree with you. 12 months in, still no check. And now he's looking for a new job. Mm-hmm. Now he's going to get a job, right? So, yeah. but the difference is opportunity costs and career acceleration and impact, right? That other mm-hmm. person, number one, is now at a CEO you know, uh, level and is being interviewed for those roles. The other person is going to have to go back and get another CPO, CTO role. Hopefully that one will be better. And we do not have unlimited time in our careers, Michael. Well, my my guest is Phil Terry. The book is Never Search Alone, The Job Seeker's Playbook. It's available now where you love where you love to buy your books. Just before we go, I can't have someone with your experience on the mic without asking, you know, this idea of a new kind of way that we're working, let's assume maybe it's going to stick around thanks to the COVID era, this hybrid work, whatever you want to call it. Um, is it as transformational as I think it is, or you think it's passing? What are you hearing from your counselors? I, you've got a, I can't think of anyone who's got a better hand on the yeah. pulse of this. What, what, in, in a few seconds, which is, we could probably do a whole other second podcast on this, but what are you thinking about hybrid work and how it influences sure. the workplace? Let me do one thing real quick before that and then answer that. One is that I just want your listeners to know that in addition to the book, I have a bunch of free tools on my website at philterry.com. That's P H Y. Phil with a Y, phyltary.com or neversearchalone.com. So all the tools and templates that I talk about in the book are available free on the website, including a free matching service. If you get the book and you want to join a job search council and you can't get enough people involved, we will come to us for free. We'll help match you with other job seekers so you can get that job search council experience. 
All right. In terms of hybrid work, I mean, this, I, it, look, if I had a crystal ball, right, I'd, I'd, yeah. I'd be a billionaire. Um, yeah. I will tell you a couple of things that I think are, are, are critical. Clearly, um, I, some version of hybrid is going to be with us for some time to come. And uh, I just want your listeners to know there was a book that came out of Harvard before the pandemic called Someone to Talk to, which had amazing research that showed that half the time that we need help, we don't explicitly ask and we get that help from people that we bump into in the hallways unplanned, right? And that drives a lot of innovation and creativity. And that, of course, is almost impossible to do in a remote situation, right? So I, I'm a believer in hybrid and having a, some in-person experience, at least for, for important roles around new product development and so and so forth, where innovation and creativity is key. But, you know, it's, this, this world, is, it's, it's a new world. Uh, we are not going back to what we had mm. before the pandemic. That is very clear. We're going forward. And there's a whole bunch of work being done on new kinds of tools that mm-hmm. might allow people to do more of that serendipity that I just described yeah. in a remote or hybrid environment. We have a number of council members who are actually building those tools today, both inside their companies and starting companies around that. So it's a very interesting moment, Michael. I'm just, I'll tell you what, though, if you're in commercial real estate, uh, you probably want to move industries. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you want to move into warehouses, I think you want to be. Well, listen, not to get ahead of ourselves, but I think it's your next book. I'll wait for that. But for now, thanks so much for joining me. So great to just have the discussion with you. And and it's a wonderful book. And and as I said, I can't recommend it enough. And and Phil, you've done such uh, such great work, and, and it was a real treat to catch up and, and speak with you again. So thanks for joining me on the Voice of Retail podcast. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for allowing your listeners to learn about my new book, Never Search Alone. Really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning into this special episode of the Voice of Retail. If you haven't already, be sure and click and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform so new episodes will land automatically twice a week. And check out my other retail industry media properties, the Remarkable Retail Podcast, Conversations with Commerce Next podcast and the Food Professor podcast with Dr. Sylvain Charlebois. Last but not least, if you're into barbecue, check out my all-new YouTube barbecue show, Last Request Barbecue, with new episodes each and every week. I'm your host, Michael LeBlanc, president of Emmy LeBlanc Company and Maven Media. And if you're looking for more content or want to chat, follow me on LinkedIn or visit my website at emmyleblanc.co. Have a safe week, everyone.